You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this afternoon, Ephesians chapter 1, the verses 15 through chapter 2, verse 10. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our text this afternoon comes from Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, the verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, on the day of Pentecost, a most amazing and surprising thing happened. You read about it this morning. If you were here, the disciples were all together in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, as it was known. They were there because this was one of those feasts that all the Israelite males were to gather together in Jerusalem. 
And so there were Jewish men there from all over the Mediterranean world. And suddenly, as the men sat there in that room together, what we read in Acts is that a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. A strange and a wonderful event. It was perplexing for those who saw it. As, as these men, as it happened to these men and they began to speak in tongues, people were so thrown off by it that they said, what's going on with these guys? They must have been drinking. They must be drunk. That's what's happening here. It was perplexing for all those who witnessed it. But for those who received it, for those disciples upon whom the Spirit came there in Jerusalem on Pentecost, it seems it was the end of their being perplexed and confused about what was happening. Jesus had said before he left, I'm going to send you the Spirit and he's going to teach you all things, remind you of everything I've said to you. And that was good, as we've seen, because the disciples often didn't have a clue what was going on and didn't understand what was happening, even as Jesus ascended into heaven. But now the Spirit came and they understood so that Peter can stand up and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the significance of the resurrection for all those there, and to say that this now is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. As Jesus had promised, the Holy Spirit had come to teach the disciples about the significance of his redemptive work and to to herald, to, to shout out from the mountaintops God's grace and sending his son to live and to die for the salvation of all those who place their trust in him. There in Jerusalem, during that feast, of course, there were Jews from all over the world. They heard this message. They heard this message of the grace of God that had been displayed in Jesus Christ. Some of them, we read in Acts chapter 2, were from the island of Crete. The very island that Titus went to establish a church. Fast forward a few decades, and this message of grace, the work of Jesus Christ, has been spreading all over the world and and spreading especially to the great cities of the world, to the great city of Antioch in Syria, the great city of Ephesus, the great city of Rome, and also here in Crete, this place in which there really was no great city. The Spirit had been sending this message of Jesus Christ all over the Mediterranean Sea, and it landed right in the middle of it as well, in the island of Crete. Crete had once been the the home to the great Minoan civilization, but as that civilization had declined, and and the Roman Empire, first the Greek, and the Roman Empire had had become larger and more powerful, then, then Crete had sort of faded into the background of importance. As Rome was... Coming to power, Crete was the place that all the pirates and mercenaries would hang out away from from Roman rule and authority. But as Rome extended their their arm, extended their power, even Crete 
came under their control. And so it became just a place to go and escape the pressures of empire life, enjoy life on the beach, as many people in Crete do even today. It's perhaps not the first place or the most important place you'd think about sending the gospel to. Everyone there is on vacation. No one there really matters that much in the grand scheme of things of the Roman Empire. And yet, the Spirit had sent this gospel directly to Crete. This out-of-the-way place, described by the poet Epimenides as a place full of liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This out-of-the-way quiet, backwater kind of place. And yet, it was here that the grace of God appeared. On the island of Crete. And the message of the gospel. The grace that redeems souls and and plants hope. And radically changes lives. So, brothers and sisters, our theme this afternoon is that the grace of God has appeared in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And this grace teaches us how to live godly lives. And it teaches us how to live godly lives while we wait for Jesus Christ for his return. And it teaches us with authority, the authority of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. So the grace of God that has appeared in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, teaches us in the first place how to live, how to live godly lives in Jesus Christ. These verses, verses 11 through 14 especially, provide what you might call the theological foundation for the instructions that Paul has been given to Titus about and uh, for the church. So this is the foundation, the theological foundation for everything that that Titus has been saying in chapter 2. The old men, the young men, the older women, the younger women, the slaves, they're all to live and act in a certain way, and that's important. But the impulse, the the foundation, the reason, the purpose, all of those are, are captured in the grace of God. It's the grace of God that provides the foundation and also the motivation for the good works, the lives of godliness that the people are to live. So throughout this chapter, Titus has been told what to teach. Titus is to be a teacher, but this teaching doesn't have its source in Titus or or in Paul. This isn't Paul's message This isn't Paul teaching them this. This isn't Titus teaching them this. But this isn't the the latest trend in in moral philosophy that the Romans so much loved. The Romans loved their moral philosophy, the Stoics, the Epicureans. They loved all that kind of stuff. This isn't some fad sweeping across the Roman world that's here today and gone tomorrow. No, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared in the flesh on this earth. In the person of Jesus Christ. And in what he accomplished in his time on this earth. And that grace teaches us how to live. So that's what that phrase, grace of God, refers to. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. 
That grace of God that brings salvation is Jesus Christ. And what he accomplished from the time that he became a man, lived his life, died for sins, was buried, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven. The grace of God that appeared in what Jesus Christ accomplished on the earth, that has appeared. And it's appeared through the proclamation of that message, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of, of that message of what Jesus Christ has done. That preaching that the Spirit has carried to cross the Mediterranean Sea, to all parts of the Roman Empire, and to the ends of the earth. So what does this grace that has appeared in the saving work of Jesus Christ, what does it teach? Well, it teaches what each group has been hearing all along. It teaches us how to live godly lives. And Paul summarizes it here. He's laid it out more explicitly in the rest of this chapter, what it teaches to each group. But he summarizes it. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's what this message teaches. So for elders, the temptation toward ungodliness and and worldly passions is a temptation toward false doctrine. Or even to using false doctrine for your own personal benefit. And for older men, the temptation is to check out of the life of the church and to just go on an extended holiday because either you think you're not needed anymore or you think you're too important to do this kind of stuff anyways. For older women, the temptation is to sit around and sip wine and share the latest gossip or slander to make your life a little more interesting. For younger women... The demands on their time with a, with children and a husband and, and all of the pressures that are on the, because of them, the temptation is to either neglect those demands altogether through laziness or to adopt a resentful and bitter attitude while you're going through it. For younger men, the, the temptation, the worldly passion is to allow whatever passion you might be feeling from one minute to the next to dominate your life. And so if you have a desire to drive fast, well then do it. Speed. If you have a desire for, for sexual fulfillment, then pursue it with all the energy that you have. If you've got a desire for excitement, then do what's necessary to pursue that. Drink or smoke up or do whatever. For the minister, the temptation is not to guard your speech to show and not to show integrity and seriousness in the way that you conduct yourself. For slaves, the passion, the temptation is to resent your earthly master and to resent his place over you rather than to recognize that he, along with you, is a servant of Jesus Christ. And so you can serve him as though serving the Lord. The grace of God teaches us to say no to all those things. You see, when you understand the grace of God, then you realize that that the selfishness and the rebellion that's characteristic of the world and characteristic even even of our hearts, the, the, the first inclination of our hearts is completely out of touch with what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Jesus did not pursue those selfish and rebellion rebellious passions. Jesus loved selflessly. He wasn't looking to his own good, to his own enrichment, to his own pleasure. He was looking to the good of, of all of us. He was looking for the, to the good of even his enemies. And he lived in complete submission to the Father because he knew that was the best way to live. 
even though that way of life led him to the cross, led him to suffer and die for sins. And through this selfless life and this life completely in harmony with the Father, Jesus opened up the way of reconciliation and communion with God. Jesus shows us the way to live. So in Jesus Christ, then, believers have a whole new way of living. The way that the Spirit poured out on Pentecost teaches us. The Spirit was going to teach those evil, brutish Cretans how to live. And he did. Taught them to have self-control. To rein in your passions and desires. And to be sober-minded. To to think things through. That's this sense of that self-control. To be sober-minded. Process things first according to the wisdom of God's word and to live upright lives, positively pursuing the directions that God gives us for our lives through his commands and directives. God teaches us how to live. It's in his word it says this is what a godly life looks like. God's grace says yes, teaches us to say yes, that's the way to live. And finally, to live godly lives, living in, in such a way that your life reflects the one in whom your hope and faith is placed. That you spend so much time looking to him and, and adoring him, loving him, that you start to look like him. The grace of God, then, that it can teach those people of Crete, it can also teach us, especially, you might say, the evil and the brutish among us. In fact, as you learn about the depths of God's grace revealed in Jesus Christ, the more you understand the grace of God in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you, the more you start to understand how evil and brutish and Cretan-like you actually are. And the more you depend on God's grace to change you. Do you struggle with sin? Do you struggle living a godly life? Those worldly passions? That ungodliness? Is that hard for you to say no to? Do you find it hard to pursue all the commands and directives that God gives us in his word for living a holy life? You find that difficult? Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. We are those whom the grace of God comes to and teaches. If we struggle with these things, brothers and sisters, what we need to learn more is the grace of God. The grace of God that has appeared in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And we're to do this while we wait for Jesus Christ. So there's a kind of living that, that we are to, to be involved in while Jesus Christ is still in heaven. It's godly living. This is the kind of living that fits with, as Paul says here, this present age. We're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The times make a big impact on how we live, don't they? 
we're coming toward the end of the school year. I'm sure all the students here can understand that, that sense of maybe their teachers understand it better of how it can be so hard to focus at the end of the school year. It's something that was easy to focus on in, in February. All of a sudden now you, your mind is just elsewhere. Why? Because of the time you're living in, because it's coming close to the end of the school year. And we do the same thing at work, don't we? Uh, it's the summer holidays at work. And so even though we're not actually on holidays, we're still getting paid, we're still supposed to be doing our work, our, our mind sort of takes a vacation and the productivity slows down. The times matter for how we live. Time of graduation is coming up. High school students. Graduation time can lead otherwise good students, know what's right and know what's wrong, to suddenly sort of abandon all that for a night or two, get into all kinds of trouble, and their otherwise conscientious parents will excuse or justify that behavior. Why does that happen? Why does that happen every year around graduation time at at the high school? Because the times make an impact on how we live. Living a godly life in Jesus Christ is also closely connected to the times. We live in this present age. This is the age of of the Spirit. This is the age in which the Spirit is, is powerfully and actively at work. This is not the time of of twiddling our thumbs and waiting for things to happen. No, this is the time that the Spirit comes into us to change us and to work through us as He spreads this message around the world. This is the age of the Spirit communicating the message of the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ. And so there's an urgency to this time, this age in history in which we live. You can sometimes have the feeling, though, can't you, that godliness is a bit dull. Godliness is like twiddling our thumbs. Uh, living a Christian life is is like working on a production line at, at some giant factory where you're kind of doing your little thing. You don't really know how it's connected with what comes out at the end of the line, but you're there. It's your job. You better do it or else you'll get fired but you don't get a whole lot of satisfaction out of it. You don't have a whole lot of urgency in the way that you do it. But Paul says, living godly lives couldn't be any more different than that. As Paul states, we live these upright and godly lives while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. He stacks all these words on top of each other to communicate the time in which we live and also the time that we look forward to. That word wait doesn't have the sense of quietly biding our time or, or boredly minding the clock, but of longing for with eager anticipation, looking forward in hope. We live godly lives in the present age with a sense of urgency and expectation. I can remember when I first started landscaping in summers. There was a time at which the the boss would drop me off at the job site all by myself. And I wouldn't really know what I was doing. And so the entire time he was gone, I wouldn't get much done. Because everything I started to do, I wasn't sure if it was the right thing. And I wasn't sure if he was going to like it. And I really wasn't sure about this whole landscaping thing to begin with. It became really boring. And it felt useless. 
That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is when we get dropped off at the job site and we've got all the instructions that we need and we've got someone right there in the Holy Spirit to teach us everything that we don't know. And we know the boss is coming back and we want to please him. And so we get to work and it's satisfying and the time is flying by because we're so busy and engaged with the task that we've been given to do. And we can't wait for our boss to come and show up and say, wow, what a great job. That's the sense that we have as we live in this age. The eagerness especially becomes comes from him who we await. We await no less than him who is the grace of God that appeared in the flesh on this earth in the first place, Jesus Christ. He's the blessed hope because it's through him that we receive all the blessings of God. His appearing will be a glorious one. The first time that he came, it wasn't a glorious appearance. He put off his glory. He came in in our flesh. He lived and he suffered on this earth. He died in shame on a cross. He rose from the dead, but even then, the the powers were at work to, to discredit that, make sure no one knew about it, concoct a story about it. He showed himself to 500 people, but then he ascended into heaven. But when he returns, when he returns, he will return to glory, clothed with glory. His second coming, unlike the first, will be a coming of might and power. It will be with hosts of angels and the sounds of trumpets. The world that rejects him will not be able to ignore him anymore. It will have to come to terms with who he is and what he's done. He is our great God. He's God, fully divine. And when he returns, that will no longer be a point of contention, but it will be perceived by all that God is indeed with us. And he is our Savior. This, perhaps more than all the others, provides the impetus for our godly living now. Because our Savior will return. We live godly lives, in other words, because we've been saved from ungodly lives. You see, we haven't been been freed from the pleasures of this world in order to engage in the doldrums of moralistic existence. Just go through the motions and do the right things because, well, that's what we have to do now. No, we've been rescued from wasting and destroying our lives in sin and suffering God's righteous judgment as a result. We've been saved from that that whole existence and we've been given a new one with meaning and purpose and value. We've been brought into God's kingdom that's going to last forever. We've been saved so that we can live at peace with God so that we can work for his pleasure. This is why, as Paul says, Jesus has not only saved us from all wickedness, but is also purifying us. Because it's in that purifying process, the sanctification of our lives, the the getting out of the ungodliness and the getting in of the godliness, that we find our purpose and meaning. And that God gets the glory and honor that he deserves. His coming will be glorious. But even now, through the purifying of our lives, God gets the glory. 
brothers and sisters, living by faith in Jesus Christ means living in hopeful expectation. And living in hopeful expectation of Christ's return means getting down to the business of serving Him every day, every minute of every day, eagerly doing what is good. So the grace of God teaches us how to live godly lives while we wait for Jesus Christ to return. And it teaches us with authority. So this is what Titus is to teach. And yet, Titus is just to be the the conduit of this message. Because this is what the grace of God teaches. And that's the nature of what preaching ministry is. Titus was a preacher. He went to Crete and he came there to be a conduit of the teaching of the Holy Spirit. What the Spirit teaches, Titus is to teach. Titus is to simply communicate what the Spirit has already revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Titus is just a a part of that process. But yet at the same time, as Titus brings that word, he brings it with authority. That's why he's to encourage and rebuke with all authority. That expression reminds us of the theme text of the year, The word of God, we read in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. The word of God can do that. And as Titus brings the word of God, he's to do that. To correct, to encourage, and rebuke. As a servant of the word, then, Titus has authority. An authority that's not to be discounted. Paul says to Titus, don't let anyone despise you. Why not? Why can't people despise him? Well, if you go back earlier to Titus, in the book of Titus, you remember how Paul had written about those false teachers. And he had concluded about those false teachers by saying, they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing any good. In other words, you can despise those false teachers because the message that they bring is not the message of God's grace. But as long as Titus is bringing the message of God's grace, as long as he's a faithful servant of God's word, he himself must be received and accepted and submitted to. It's quite possible that given the nature of the people of Crete with that that past that caused them to be called evil gluttons, evil brutes and liars, It's possible that with that past, they were a difficult bunch to minister to. It's also possible, however, that they were no different than people all around the world, no different than people in Langley, no different than the people who are sitting here this afternoon. Prone prone to push back against authority, given to indulging in sin more than they should, showing themselves to be a little slow of learning at times. This is the kind of people that we are. This is the kind of people that people are all around the world. Yes, also the people that make up the church. You see, that's precisely, it's precisely these kind of people, the ones who push back, the ones who sin too much, the ones who are are slow at learning. It's exactly these people who need the grace of God. It's exactly these people who the grace of God could actually teach. It's those who struggle and who fight and who forget and who fail. And who recognize it. That become the most teachable. 
The ones whom God's grace revealed in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ can go to work on, can teach, change, and train in all righteousness. That's why the minister of the gospel has to bring this message of grace, and that's why he has to bring it boldly, with authority, for the benefit of those who will receive, so that they can be taught by it. That's why he has to bring it with encouragement and with rebuke. Because sometimes we're overwhelmed by sin. And we need the encouragement of the grace of God. The encouragement that says Jesus Christ has borne that sin for you. And sometimes we love our sin too much. And then we need the rebuke of God. The rebuke that says this is not how those redeemed by Jesus Christ ought to live. At all times, all different types and tribes of people need the message of God's grace. And that's why you are called to sit under it and to submit to it. To voluntarily and actively, week by week, day by day, put yourself under God's word. And put yourself under God's servant as he proclaims that word, so that you too and all of us together can be taught to live godly and holy lives. And that's why God sends his spirit. That's why he didn't forget about that island on the Mediterranean. That's why God has been moving this message of the gospel all around the world. And he continues that work even today. That work begun on Pentecost, which continues today. This is why God is having this message of grace proclaimed. Because we need it. We need it. We are the kind of people who need God's grace. For our salvation and for living fruitful and fulfilling lives in God's kingdom. Eagerly expecting its final coming for God's praise and glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.